Recorded live. Happy Independence Day, everybody. It is Tuesday, July the 3rd, uh, 20, no, 2018. So here we are tonight with Walter Check, who is going to talk to us about something. Well, something will be filled in as I go because I have so many different subjects to integrate in this. Uh, I'm going to start out with one document I just invented, which is really nice, and kind of go in from other areas dealing with oaths and and other areas dealing with judges and statements you can have them sign. Anyway, I'm going to come out. The first thing I'm going to talk about is motion for discovery. And I'm not talking about discovering the court. Okay, so typically in these courts, they simply come against you in your all-capital all name capacity, right? So this is a way for you to come against the court and, or, or the plaintiff in a way that they don't expect. So, so I'm going to read through, through some of this uh, material here that I did. Just, it's pretty short on this one. And the motion of discovery is to, says, I now come as Robert Doe, as myself, as, as a living man, non-resident, by special and not general appearance, on behalf of the defense substitute plaintiffs, your pharmacy, Inc., uh, Robert Doe, uh, RP, and Robert Doe, RP, on this all caps, uh, the defendant substitute plaintiffs. And what I'm doing here, uh, these... The Robert Doe was addressed as a defendant, so basically we're coming in, also making them the substitute plaintiffs if the other side doesn't show their claim. They have to have a claim, the proof of claim, of course. Uh, so with these different parties, uh, there are serious jurors, and for each of their motions for discovery, hereby states as follows. Number one, that on, on this case, April, on April 24, 2018, defendants and substitute plaintiffs were served with a complaint law in the summons. That, and this, I, I made this up, Bill Pharmacy, Inc., and Robert Doe, R.P., and Robert Doe, R.P., these are mixed in an uppercase, are each named as defendants herein. Number three, that in the case of the complaint law, Defenders and substitute plaintiffs are in need of obtaining, dis- obtaining discovery in this matter, including but not limited to the original contracts or agreements bearing the authorized wedding signature of defendant, me- memorandum, notes, bonds, oaths, licenses, class, mes- class messages, supplemental reports, and all documents regarding your pharmacy. Robert Dillard P. and Robert Dillard P. That's mixing up the case. And number three, that in addition to any and all original contracts, bonds, notes, oaths, and and, and or agreements bearing the authorized record each defendant, that the discovery request is crucial to the defendant's defense in this matter. So the work for the defendants, your pharmacy, Inc., Robert Dillard P. and Robert Dillard P. That's mixing up the case. Uh, each respective request is on both court to grant the defendants and substitute plaintiffs request for discovery for such other and further relief as court commands fair and just. Uh, so they're basically they're requiring the court or the plaintiffs to come in and show all of the documents signed by the by the sections, which is impossible. So, so they, they show their fraud right there. I'm trying to especially expose the court any way I can. Uh, the only thing that might be better than this, better than this type of approach, is use a subpoena juice system uh, for the all capital names and, and the fictional, fictional entities. Okay, so that's another approach. So, hey Walter. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think you're brushing up against the uh, buttons on your phone. Uh, okay. Well, I have that phone away from me here. Is that? Well, keep going. Okay, so uh, with this, uh, first of all, is there, does anybody have any questions what I'm doing here? Hit star eight on your phone if you got any questions for Walter. 
So far, so no. So okay. keep going. So okay, so basically, this is uh, approach for discovery that the court typically doesn't expect. Uh, another thing I'm looking at here as well. These are all these are different points to come against these courts and judges for their in their capacity as their with how they're operating, which is typically unlawful. Okay, let's see here. Come on. Let's try to move this. Now let's see here. Start doing some stuff. Come on. Okay, now. And the oath of office. Okay, this is a statement you can give to the judge and give opportunities to sign. And they put their name and their social security number in there. And they have to affirm all of these statements is true. Uh, first, I have I have never, and this refers to them, not to you, I have never advocated for the overthrow of, of the Constitution. Number two, I'm not a member of of an organization which advocates the overthrow of our constitutional form of government. And the third one is, I have not participated in a strike or assisted a strike against the constitutional form of government. Uh, next is, I do not have friends, family, or employees who have asserted the right to strike against the constitutional form of government. And next is, I'm retiring from military and my oath for certain for such service is in good standing, I have not withdrawn my oath. And next, I have sworn to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And next, I have always bared true faith in allegiance to the same. And then right below that, it talks about Title 18, Part 1, Chapter 93, Section 1918. This loyalty in asserting the right to strike against government that whoever violates the provision of Section 7311 of Title V, that individual may not accept or hold a position in the government of the United States or the government of the District of Columbia if he, one, advocates the overthrow of our constitutional form of government, two, is a member of an organization that he knows advocates the overthrow of our constitutional form of government, three, participation in a strike or search the right to strike against the government of the United States or the government of the District of Columbia, or four, as a member of an organization of employees of the government of the United States or of individuals employed by the government of the District of Columbia that he knows asserts the right to strike against the government of the United States or the government of the District of Columbia, uh, then they should be fined under this title or in prison not more than one year and a day or both. And the next part is under Title 10, Subtitle A, Part 2, Chapter 31, Section 502, Enlistment Oath, Who May Administer? So each person enlisting in an armed force shall take the following oath. This is, I'm going to put their name in. To solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so help me God. It also can be taken before any commission officer of the, of the armed force. And then the next, next one is. Part Title Five, Part Two, Subpart B, Chapter Thirty Three, Subchapter Two, Section Three 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 One, Oath of Office. An individual, except the president, elected or appointed to an office of honor or profit in the civil service or uniformed service, shall take the following oath: I, and then they put their, their name and do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter, so help me God. The section does not affect other things required by law. And then it says, right below, so I certify under penalty perjury the foregoing is true and correct. That's under 28 U.S.C. 1746. So they, they, 
basically give this to the judge to sign, and also probably the attorneys and, and all the other parties in there in the court. They typically won't sign it, though. Uh, next one, though, is, let's say, avoid, dealing with a void order. Now, all this ties together when you think about it. Okay, dealing with void orders. Okay, number one, uh, that the United States Supreme Court has cl- clearly and repeatedly held that any judge who acts without jurisdiction is engaged in acts of treason. That's U.S. versus Will, 449 U.S. 200, uh, comma, 216, comma, 101, uh, S, uh, period, CT, 471, comma, 66, uh, L, uh, period, ED, period, 2D, 292, comma, 406, 19, uh, 1980, and Collins versus Virginia, 19 U.S., uh, MS under, uh, I'm not going to go into all that, but anyway, and then number two, that the United States Supreme Court in Twining versus, Twining versus New Jersey under 211 U.S. 78 uh, stated that due process, due process requires the court which assumes to determine the rights of parties should not have a jurisdiction, uh, citing Owain Mutual Life Association versus McDonough and several, several other cases I have there. And the next one, this due process is a requirement of the U.S. Constitution. Violation of the United States Constitution by a judge deprives that person from acting as a judge under the law. He or she is acting as a private person and not in the capacity of being a judge and therefore has no jurisdiction. I'll give you a case in point. There's two or three cases I've been working on this week and last week uh, where the judges have found there's no record of their oath anywhere. So we put in uh, complaints against them, criminal charges and all that for for, uh, for impersonation of a judge uh, with the, um, uh, let's see, Attorney General. Uh, next is the state courts have held that those who aid, abet, advise, act upon and execute the order of a judge who acts without jurisdiction are equally guilty. Now, most people don't know that, but it's true. Uh, they are equally guilty of a crime against the U.S. government. And so, not only you come against the judge, you does something unlawful, but all the people who support his decision, the clerk, uh, police, and all the other parties. Now, a voidable order is an order that must be declared as void by a judge to be void. And a void order is an order issued without jurisdiction by a judge and is void of an issue. That's, that's the very beginning. And does not have to be declared as void by a judge to be void. Only an inspection of the record of the case showing that the judge was without jurisdiction or violated the person's due process rights or where fraud was involved in the attempt hold it. to... Say that again. Repeat okay. that about uh, 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 an order does not have to, for something to be void, it does not have to be declared by a judge. Right, right. Okay. It says, okay, it says, um, I'll read that one part again and continue so you get it. A void order is an order issued without jurisdiction by a judge and is void ab initio does not have to be declared void by a judge to be void. Only an inspection to the record of the case showing that the judge was without jurisdiction or violated okay. the first due process rights or where fraud was involved in attempted procurement of jurisdiction is sufficient for an order to be void. That's Potenz, P-O-T-E-N-Z, Corporation versus Petrogini. And I have all the items on that, all different cases. In, in instances herein, the law stated that the orders are void ab initio and not voidable because they are already void. All right. So, um, I think I mentioned this before. Uh, I was in a case where the other side wanted, like, sanctions and all kinds of crap. And so, 
I did an administrative process on the judge, and I asked the judge to affirm my rights in the case, and if he didn't, then he agreed that the um, the order was void. Yes. Null and void. And so I did an administrative process on him. I defaulted him, and... I then <laughs> I went into the court to record a notice of void judgment. And the gal at the counter says, Hold on, I'll be right back. It took twenty minutes. And so <laughs> they finally recorded it. Good. Good. So, well, you know, if you do an administrative process on the judge for that, that could be one way to avoid a judgment. Yes. Yeah, there, there's another case I saw with one of my other clients today, and said the judge came in and just ruled against them, and they said, well, I, the judge says, I don't have to give you a reason. I, I, I just ruled against you. And even though all of the evidence showed the other way, the feds, of course, they were probably being taken off, you know, so uh, so that's some, that's reason for avoid judgment right there when a judge comes in and there's not give any reason whatsoever for the <clears throat> For their opinion, you know, uh, if, they're, if they're not relying on evidence, but basically on on their own feelings, emotions, uh, bias, uh, it's void. Right. Uh, next, uh, there is a misconception by attorneys and judges that only a judge may declare an order void, but this is not the law. Number one, there is no statute nor case law that supports this. Support supports this position, and number two, should there be any case law that allegedly supports this argument, that case would be directly contrary to the law established by the use of, by the U.S. Supreme Court in Valley versus Northern Fire and Marine Insurance Company under 254 U.S. 348 uh, under article 41 uh, S period CT period 116. That was a 1920 case, as well as other state courts, e.g., by the Illinois Supreme Court in People versus Miller, uh, Supra, and then a party may have a court vacate a uh, vacate a void order, but the void order is still void uh, of initia, which is to the beginning, whether vacated or not. A piece of paper does not determine whether an order is void. It just memorializes it, makes it makes it legally binding, and voids out all previous orders returning this case to the date prior to an action leading to void of an issue. Okay. Does anybody have any questions so far? Hit star eight on your phone to raise your hand, and we'll call on you. Hit star eight. <clears throat> Nobody has any questions. Let's continue on. Well, I had a lot more more material here. Uh, Next, uh, this principle of law was stated by the U.S. Supreme Court as, uh, quote, courts are constituted by authority, and they cannot go beyond that power delegated to them. If they act beyond that authority, and certainly in contravention of it, their judgment and orders are regarded as nullities. They are not voidable, but simply void, and this is even prior to reversal. And uh, this is already versus Northern Fire Marine Insurance Company. I mentioned that. Uh, and also Old Wayne Mutual Insurance Association versus McDonough. Uh, that's 204 U.S. 204 U.S. 8, okay, and 27 S. Perry CT 236. That was 1907 case. And Williamson versus Barry, and then eight HOW period four ninety five comma five forty comma twelve and then L period. And there's more cases that are not going to go into all those. Uh, next is uh, pursuant to the Valley Court decision, a void order does not have to be reversed by any court to be a void order. Courts all have also held that. Since a void order is not a final order, but is in effect no order at all, it cannot even be appealed. 
courts have held that a, that a void decision is not, in essence, a decision at all and never became final. Consistent with this holding, in 1991, the U.S. Supreme Court stated that, quote, since such jurisdictional defect deprives not only the initial court, but also the, uh, the appellate court of this power over the case or controversy to permit the, to permit the appellate court to ignore it. Okay, it would be on unlawful action by an appellate court as Freytag, Freytag, F-R-E-Y-T-A-G versus commissioner under 501 U.S. 868. That's a 1991 case. Miller Supra. Uh, following the same principle, it would be an unlawful action for a court to rely on order issued by a judge who did, who did not have subject matter jurisdiction and therefore, the order he issued was void of an issue, right? And then um, a void order may be challenged in any court at any time, and even by third parties. A void order has no legal force or effect, as one court stated. A void order is equivalent to a blank piece of paper. Think of that. Isn't that nice? Now... Under this section here, dealing with violation of the Constitution. While a judge may issue orders to control his court, he has no lawful or no lawful authority to issue any order which violates the supreme law of the land. The First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution states that all entities have the mandatory right of an adequate, complete, effective, fair, full meaningful and timely access to the court. The 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution provides the interest of parents in the care, custody, and control of their children is perhaps the oldest of fundamental liberty interest recognized by the court. As Trotsville versus Granville, the USA, as it was 19, I mean, 2000, I mean, year 2000, parents have a liberty interest of the custody established by but procedures meeting the requirements of due process that took force in the United States Court of Appeal in 1985. Indeed, the rights of girls and children are so firmly rooted in our culture that the United States Supreme Court has held it to be a fundamental liberty interest protected by the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. That's Hop versus Hop, Tennessee Supreme Court, 1993. The 5th and 14th Amendment guarantees due process and equal protection to all. No, quote, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction equal protection of the law. That's uh, the United States Constitutional Amendment um, <clears throat> 14 and adopted by the, by the state of Indiana Constitution in that case. Uh, it says uh, choices about marriage, family life, upbringing of children or among associational, associational rights ranked as a basic importance in our society, rights sheltered by the 14th Amendment against states unwarranted usurpation, disregard, and disrespect that's under the USCA Constitutional Amendment 14. And let's see, it goes on. Okay, who goes into family life or family life uh, violations and other things? I'm not going to go into all that. Be here all night. <laughs> Next. Uh, let's see, get this on here. Get this. Um, let's see, dealing, here's another area, too. Dealing with speedy trials. Okay, this is all dealing with court-related items. And there's there's people I've been running that are going up for trial and basically just looking at the time that they were in charge and the time they were going up for trial uh, basically sees the time for the Speedy Trial Act. And that's one one thing that hit these courts with. Okay, and there's um in this one particular case I have, um there's uh I and then uh, it says the sovereign, this is another party here, but I, I don't like to use the word sovereign. Uh, basically, use another word instead uh, for that. Uh, basically, non resident. 
because the non-resident is not tied to their laws as far as being in the uh, possessions or territories of the United States. So I, as non-resident, demand strict adherence to the constitutional laws of the United States. I do not waive any rights or give up the same. I understand that the provisions of the federal statute commonly known as the Speedy Trial Act under 18 U.S.C. Section 3161 fully understanding my rights and entitlements under that act, I hereby do not waive those rights and entitlements and do not consent to a continuance of the case beyond the time limits and exclusions set forth in that act. And then you have under federal rules of civil procedure, uh, part three, under pleadings and motions, rule eight, general rules of pleading, and then this is part E, a pleading to be concise and direct, consistency, each environment of the pleading shall be simple, concise, and direct. No technical form of pleading or motions are required. Now, on that point right there, I was just dealing with a case here recently, and the attorney came in on these charges against the party with 44 pages, single space. And it had 114 paragraphs just listing statute after statute after statute. So I pulled that out and basically I put an order to send it back that that was not acceptable for the court because it's not concise and direct. It has to be concise and direct. Okay, and then part F, uh, construction of pleadings. All pleadings shall be so construed as to do substantial justice. And then silly jurors. No rights waived, Republic versus Cox, and Gideon versus Wainwright. Pleadings need not to be within the same standards as an attorney, which is very, very key. A lot of people come in and the, the attorneys in the court say, well, your pleadings have to be the same, the same as your attorney. Well, since when? I mean, you're not an attorney. You, you don't understand their, their rules to begin with and, and the terms. So, uh, you're not going to back on them. Uh, there's, also, there's actually three congressional mandates that I have that you're not, you're not required to have uh, an attorney for counsel at all. So Now, when a party is not represented... Hello? Go ahead. Okay. When a party is not represented by counsel, service shall be made on the party personally by mail or by commercial carrier. Ordinarily, service on the party must be by a manner at least as expeditious as the manner used to file a document with the court. And then and, uh, it's signed here, well, uh, certified under penalty of perjury if the foregoing is to correct under 28 U.S.C. 1746. And it says expiration of time limit uh, expired, okay, on a certain date. So, in other words, you have I have other rules here which I go into quite extensively as far as the times uh, and the maximum times you're allowed, which is pretty good. Um, I'll read some of this here as it goes into a lot of material here. I won't be able to cover it in one session, but I'll go over some of the some of the key points because that's that's the key thing. And I, I know some people are working with right now uh, probably looking at going into a trial. Uh, for different things, and the trial is way beyond the time of it. That's a lot of these things. So that's one of the first things we address. So um, this is under Title 18, Part 2, Chapter 208, Section 3161. This is for time limits and exclusions. And Part A, in any case involving a defendant charged with an offense, the appropriate judicial officer at the earliest practicable time shall, after consultation with the counsel for the defendant and the attorney for the government, set a case for trial on a day certain or listed for trial on a weekly or a short-term trial calendar at a place within, within the judicial district so as to assure a speedy trial. Part B any information or indictment charging an individual with the commission of an offense shall be filed within 30 days from the date on which such individual was arrested or served with a summons in connection with the charges. So, 
Uh, so we have 30 days on that first part. Okay, this this is from the indictment to the um, to the uh, from the from the commission of offenses filed. Um, from the time the day was, of course, the individual was arrested for water. And uh, if an individual has been charged with a felony in a district in which no grand jury has been in session during such 30 day period, the period of time for filing indictment shall be extended an additional 30 days. So there's a top limit of 60 days from the arrest for, the, for that indictment. Uh, and then the next part, C. Uh, one, in any case in which the plea of not guilty is entered, the trial of a defendant charged in information or indictment with the commission of an offense shall commence within 70 days from the filing date and making public of the information or indictment or from the date the defendant has appeared before a judicial officer of the court in which such charge is pending. So, so in this case, um, where you have the plea of uh, not guilty, okay, the trial has to start within 70 days from the time the person is charged, right? Um, now, let's say the, um, the defendant consents in writing to be tried before a magistrate judge on a complaint, the trial shall commence within 70 days from the date of such consent. Number two, unless the defendant consents in writing to the contrary, the trial should not commence less than 30 days from the date on which the defendant first appears through counsel or expressly waives counsel and elects to proceed pro se. And actually, you don't want to proceed pro se, you want to proceed pro uh, so with yours. Right? And then the next part here, uh, D1. If any indictment or information is dismissed upon motion of the defendant or when any charge contained in the complaint filed against individual is dismissed or otherwise dropped and the rational complaint is filed against such defendant or individual charging him with the same offense or an offense based on the same conduct or arising from the same criminal episode or information or indictment is filed charging such defendant with the same offense or offense based on the same conduct or arising from the same criminal episode, the provisions of subsection B and C of the section shall be applicable with respect to such subsequent with respect to such subsequent subsequent complaint, indictment, or information as case may be. Um, there's a lot more in there, but the major thing is 60 to 70 days um, at a time to charge have a trial. So. And if it goes way well beyond that, that's one reason to knock it out. All right. Let's take another one. All another right. One. Any, any questions on this so far? Um, if you have any questions, hit star eight on your phone. I, I can tell you that um, we're losing people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm good. I'm getting into some more exciting things here besides this. I want to cover some of these things because I had to look up some of these areas myself with doing with some of the parties. Let's see. Well, um, we, might, we might want to consider cutting it short because it is a holiday. Right, right. Um, well, this, this is a real short one here. This is uh, really quick here. This is uh, address the civil servants who are saying they're fired, all right? And um, they had no immunity for suit damages for, or jail time in either their private or public service capacity. It's under Title 42, Section 12, 202. The state shall not be immune, and also Title 15, Section 11, 22. There's no immunity of state actors in Title 42, Section 1983. It says, I'm your employer as you have taken my tax offer salary. You no longer have the protection of a citizen but a public servant. And let's see, these are some of the questions in here. 
they have to initial on each of these items. Uh, they're tried by the civil servant, and all trials except for impeachment shall be by jury. You may be impeached. Duty uphold the Constitution. They have to uphold that. Uh, another one is have never they have never advocated for the overthrow of the Constitution. The next is they have never taken any emoluments or, or enrichment uh, in office. Uh, next is my pay is only as required by the Constitution, paid out by the United States Treasury. I swear I do not receive payment from any state, county, or city. So they can't if they're receiving Federal Reserve notes. Uh, that is not money from the United States Treasury. Right? So they can't do that. They can't sort of that. And next, I do not work for a corporate, state, or city or county. And they're all corporate. Right? Every single city, state, and county is all corporate because they're all a federal universe. Uh, next, they must have never written attainders or legal attainders. Okay? Next, they must, have, must never have participated in a strike or assisted a strike. Against, against the constitutional form of government. And then next, if we're trying to the military, their oath for such service is a good standing. They have not withdrawn their oath. They must sort of support and defend the Constitution, the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, next, they must have, must have never forced a deprivation under color of any state law, statute, ordinance, regulation, custom, or usage of any right secured by the Constitution of the United States. Next, they must never have given any illegal alien aid and comfort, okay? Next, if they refuse to initial reform, the refusal will be grounded to fire them on the spot. And, this, and basically, after that, it says, referring to them, who are summarily dismissed without benefit of any type. They misconduct as a high misdemeanor and may be discharged for treason. They have sworn not to violate the Constitution of the United States of America under Title V, Section 331, unless you can provide me with a witness against me, which is which as a public servant you cannot do. And that's you have struck against the constitutional form of government and may be arrested on the spot and held for one year and one day for each once in dereliction of duty under Title 18, Section 1918. This whole thing and asserting the right to strike against government. And uh, next, uh, you, this is really very important. You lack the victim, you lack the crime. There's no state codes, United States codes, or rules. Uh, you must use law. Uh, you lack a warrant, an indictment by grand jury, and you lack jurisdiction, both subject matter and, and in personality jurisdiction. And then last, uh, you have committed the crime of summary judgment, false arrest, murder of a chainer, conspiracy against rights, and committed abuse of power. And you'll see this is happening all the time in virtually every court across the land. And so people have to rise up and do something about it as far as exposing these critters. Okay? So that's what I have to say. Does anybody have any more questions? If you have any questions, hit star eight on your phone. Otherwise, I think we're going to end it early. All right. That's fine. Doesn't look like anybody has any questions. Okay. Hold on. Colorado, go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah, most of the things you're uh, asking the judge to sign there and agree to, I mean that should be already covered in on his oath for even being in that office, shouldn't it? Basically, most of the judges I'm looking at, as far as the case I'm in, don't even have an oath of office, so they don't have any lawful orders. All of their orders are void. That's why I brought all the stuff about being having void orders. All right. They're, they're basically committing uh, false personation. They're uh, basically uh, acting as a government official, in which case they're not at all. Right. And that's and most of them don't have a bond either. Well, that's right. There's a there's an oath and a bond requirement, and they both have to coincide for their full term of office. Not right. that they have an oath. 
for a couple of days and have a bond for some other days. It has to be for the full term. And when you go into get these, when you try to get these, okay, you can, I had two or three cases this week, or last week, where the people went in and they tried to find these things for the judge, and there was no record whatsoever for any oath or any bond with the court, with the Secretary of State, or any, any public official had no record of them, so they're not qualified to, to be in that office. If anything, they should be arrested and put, put behind bars. Right. So what do you well, do in that case? Well, I, I have another document that you can put in to, to arrest the judge. I was just trying to cover some of that tonight. Uh, that's why I was trying to cover things very slowly. Uh, there's so many things to, to go over. I was doing with this. Uh, let's see. There's a one here. It's a... Uh, oh, come on. Move this thing down a little bit. It's, uh, it's a uh, complaint form uh, against the judicial officer. Okay? And it goes, actually, it's pretty extensive. And then you also put the statement attached in there with the, what the judge did. And I could read it. it it's, it's yeah, would you? What's that? Would you please read that? Oh, sure. Okay. This is a questionnaire complaint formed against a judicial officer. And it's uh, hereby request investigation of judge and put the blank in there. Of, of whatever name, court and, and county, whatever, and, and the state name. Uh, on information and belief, I state the above name judge uh, and, and check all pro- appropriate items. Number one, was there a trial by jury? If there's no jury present, then it is, a, it is an impeachment. Are you impeaching the judge? And, and if we only allow hearing without a jury is for treason. The jury present, if there's, if there's no jury present, it's an automatic insanity of the judge. Number two, the judge is subject to supreme law and has violated the person's rights under the, supreme, under the supremacy clause that appears in Article 6 of the United States Constitution. Uh, number three, of course, the person will put a check mark on each of these right, as applicable. Number three, as practice law from the bench, anytime a judge enters an attorney making a statement by or on behalf of a defendant or claiming that a point of view should apply and then making an order that she use a certain attorney, mediator, or child protective service for her, anytime a judge violates constitutional law, it is practicing law from the bench. Number four, failure to ensure rights. Right. Due process. Right to counsel, right to trial for a fine over $20. Child support is such a fine. Okay, number five, has engaged in unethical and improper conduct of the judge. Demeanor, decorum, includes inappropriate humor, including ordering an indigent to get an attorney. Uh, Number six, partiality, bias, or prejudice against individual or group includes embroilment, Judgment, favoritism, including and proper religious, gender, race, disability, and, and indigent. Number seven, ex parte or one sided communication with one or some, but not all parties or attorneys, including refusing to listen to a pro se or pro party or close to the Eight, conflict of interest or failure to disqualify on bench. And this is on best abuse of authority in performance of the public service. Okay, number nine, gifts or loans or favors or ticket fixing, including tabling of charges and failure to charge social or other parent for kidnapping, abduction, and contempt of court is giving of giving of a favor or or ticket fixing. Number ten, administrative malfeasance that includes conflicts between judges. Failure to supervise staff, delay in responding to complaints about commissioners, for example. Number 11, decisional delay, tardiness, attendance. Number 12, 
sexual harassment or inappropriate workplace gender comments, lack of candor or cooperation with regulatory authorities. 13, has willfully or or persistently failed to perform an official duty by uh, A, delay, includes a delay in setting a matter for hearing or deciding the case, including trumping up evaluations to delay decisions and continuations to prolong the amount of time a child has with a parent or to terminate parental rights. B, injudicious temperament includes failure to be patient, dignified, and courteous, or by exhibiting rude or intimidating conduct. C, abuse of judicial power includes a knowing or persistent disregard of clear law or fundamental rights. D, legal error or improper procedure includes dissatisfaction with the court procedures or rulings on evidence, criminal sentences, custody, etc. E, failure to perform duties of office, the judicial duties of upholding the Constitution. F, failure to review evidence in the case. It happens all the time. Okay, and then another part, number 14, has engaged in gross personal misconduct. Misconduct off the bench includes uh, prohibited charitable, business, personal, political, or criminal conduct, non-substance abuse, or uh, criminal criminal conduct. Uh, next, uh, 15, has used intoxicating beverages or dangerous drugs in such a way as to interfere with the proper performance of official duties. 16 has a physical or mental disability that impairs a proper performance of official duties. 17, was there denial to the courtroom to uh, to do whatever that required, okay? 18, were all parties present in the court? Okay, if not, was there a default judgment made? Uh, 19, um, was either party denied the opportunity to cross-examine the witness? 20, was was a timely attempt to introduce testimony from Child Protective Service mediation or the other party. 21, was there an attempt to get the improper service of papers or notice of appearance of witnesses? Uh, 22, uh, was there a proof of service of the court date and all evidence witnesses present? Uh, 23, was was the sculptural evidence ignored, or did you have proof that nothing happened? And then uh, it goes down here about the the Title 28 Judiciary and Additional Procedure, Part 1, Organization of Courts, Chapter 21, uh, General Provisions Applicable to Courts and Judges, and Section 453, Part of the Oaths and Judges, Judges, okay, and moves on down here. Well, there's a lot more. And then, then it goes into statement of facts where you put the specific details of what the judge did and constitutes misconduct or, or indicates a disability of the judge to hold the position. So, and it also shows the code numbers and things like this that, that might be applicable. And then this is all R.E. Adamson versus California, June 23, 1947. The first 10 amendments were proposed and adopted largely because of fear the government might unduly interfere with prized individual liberties. The people wanted and demanded a Bill of Rights written into the Constitution. The amendments embodying the Bill of Rights were intended to curb all, all branches of the federal, federal government in the fields touched by the amendments, the legislative, executive, and judicial. The fifth, sixth, and eighth amendments were pointedly aimed at defining exercise of power by courts. Right, so, and there's more here uh, that a private citizen can be held liable under Section 1983. And this is a uh, while a private citizen cannot ordinarily be held under Section 1983 because the statute requires action under color of law uh, state statute, uh, if a private citizen conspires with the state actor, then the private citizen is subject to Section 1983 liability. 
Case Brokaw versus Mercer County and some other cases. And let's see. Um, let's see. To establish the 1983 liability through conspiracy theory, the plaintiff must demonstrate that one, the state official and private individual reach an understanding to deprive the plaintiff of his constitutional rights, and two, those individuals were willful participants in joint activity with the state or its agents. Right, and that's under Fries versus Hulsfer, uh, 146F3D, 452-457. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch more I go into. We have somebody else that has a question. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Hi, Walter. Yes. Uh, that was an awesome list you just read. It's a little difficult to hear you. Is there any way to get a copy of that list? I I have it. I could probably send it over to Chad, uh, and you could probably put it on yeah. the site. Yeah, cause I think there's several things in there that uh, I and others could use that would just... Well, uh, well, well, the whole, whole purpose of me being out here is to bring this stuff out for people to use. I mean, I, I don't want to be the only one in the world doing this. <laughs> Have other people use it, too, you know? Yes, I like that part on the private citizen um, versus the public official. Yes. Yeah, I, I have that. I have a whole bunch more in here uh, as well. Uh, the state shall be considered an excellent to have denied equal protection to law secured by the Constitution. There's under a whole bunch of different sections in here. And then um, let's see here. This I, I kind of read this under under the first part. The United States or any agency thereof or any officer or any person acting under that officer of the United States or of the agency thereof sued in an official or individual capacity for any act under color of such office or on account of any right title of authority claimed under any act of Congress for the apprehension or punishment of criminals or the collection of revenue. And it goes into... Well, in, in such a case, uh, is it be- especially if you had a judge that acted ultra-virus, is it best if you bring a suit against him to go after him in both his individual and public capacity? Well, yeah, you, you attack him first in the individual capacity. If it's a public official, the, all, the only way you can really attack him successfully is in an individual capacity because if you attack him in the public capacity, you're you're assuming or presuming that is the official the official capacity of that position is to is to deprive you of your rights and it's not. But the person is doing it in an individual capacity. So it should be sued or handled in an individual capacity because it's your individual decision that's causing harm. So I guess what I'm asking, is it best to throw both in your suit just in case one is stronger than the other, or does that bring confusion? Well, what I would do is, is, is you're not going against the office. You attack the person in their NSA capacity. You have their name, in this case, name, comma, NSA, DBA, and they're all capital name, and they're all capital name position. And they're uh, operating with uh, the organization of working for all capital uh, and their address, all capital, comma, supervisor, supervisor, agent, and sign. So that's anybody that's with them and trying to and trying to enforce what they're doing. Remember, I read earlier tonight, as you were on the show, about other individuals that were working under the parties making decisions to enforce unlawful. Decisions are also also liable. Remember that. So this would be this addresses supervisors, anybody above, okay, uh, heirs, agents, and assigned. So anybody assigned his position or working with them to to move against you in unlawful unlawful capacity could be uh, nailed. Okay. All right. 
Okay, thank you. One way, one way to do this online is to um, do a uh, notice of lien against them, and also payment lien, and basically set up an individual contract with them. And then after that, uh, if they move against you, once they're notified of this contract, then you can start billing them. And then ultimately, I probably the best way down the line is to enforce the lien is to put them into involuntary bankruptcy. In the case I mean, of a judge? Yes. Oh, you come is that like a like private administrative letters to him? You come against them in their NSA capacity. If they they have no immunity for their actions, if they are if they are committing offenses against their sworn oath, they have no immunity whatsoever. So that's how you attack them in their individual capacity, in their NSA capacity. That's why I'm saying this. You don't want to attack them in the judge. You want to attack them in the individual. Okay. Am I still on there? We can Hello. hear you. Okay. Uh, let me jump in. That's what the, the guys in Colorado, they noticed all these judges and assorted officials, and they had a big old list all the way up to the governor because none of them had their oaths or their bonds properly. Yeah. So they noticed them. They said, will give you the opportunity to leave office, and they didn't, and they did this all with a common law jury, and then they leaned them. Yes. And then, okay, and then when the judge found out he didn't have any credit to uh, get a loan for his daughter's college, they rounded these guys up. One of them's gotten 40 years. One of them's gotten 20 years. That's the... Uh, we call them the Colorado Nine. So, be careful if you're gonna if you're gonna do this stuff. I, I understand. I understand that. But there's a bunch of things that you can tie into with the case. The first thing, if they come against you, never identify us at all. Capital name. Well, never right. Name. They, they didn't. They didn't care about any of that. They didn't. Yeah, they but, didn't care about law or anything else. They were. Put, Regardless, why I look at it, you have to stand up regardless of the consequences because we, we live in, trouble, in in difficult times. But if people don't stand up to do anything, it's going to get much worse, much faster. Well, it seems to be a safer thing to do. We do, do an administrative process and then go find their bonds and then put in a claim yeah. against their bond. Yeah, yeah. That would be a safer thing to do because now you're leaving it up to a third party who they're contracting with to That's make true. that decision. Yeah. Well, well, well he's right about about the judges. Uh, when you start bringing liens into the thing, they get really nasty. They collude together. They'll do everything they can to destroy you. But I also agree with you, Walter. It, somebody's got to start standing up, or it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. But you know, from, from trying to file in county recordings to filing the UCCs to doing court things, whenever it leads to anything against a public official, they get really, really strong. Of course. I, no, I, I've seen it over and over again. <laughs> I'm speaking of spirits. But, but people, have, people stand up in mass and start doing this. They'll have no choice but to back down. Right. Yeah, one of these enthusiasts, I, I understand what they're doing. They're trying to stamp it out. But you've got thousands of people doing this all of a sudden. Uh, they won't be able to contain it. They won't be able well, to do it. Well, class action. Yeah, well, class action are typically tied with attorneys. I trust that as far as I can throw it. Uh, I, I don't trust anything with attorneys. It's right. worthless. No. Okay, well, when you talk about those uh, void orders, they're not voidable, they're void, and that you don't even, you don't need a a court to rule on that, yet they go ahead and they lean and they levy and they do all that. How do you enforce that 
when it is void? I mean, how do you well, stop them? Well, I guess folks start out with the bonds and find the bonds or remove the bonds. And once their bonds are gone, they can't work for the government anymore. Uh-huh. That's what you think? Yeah. Okay. All right, so we're at our hour now. So I think I'm going to wrap it up so people can go enjoy their holiday. Enjoy enjoy all the fireworks. You can't fire out here in, in Arizona because it's... Yeah, pretty much everywhere else, too. All right, so I think that's going to do it. So, Walter, thank you again for that incredible piece of uh, education. And uh, you guys will uh, will follow up again next week. Thank, okay. Thanks, so, Jim. So, everybody, thank you very much, and good night. Okay, good night.